you have this perception of yourself as a strong black woman and um, you don't want to appear to be someone vulnerable or someone who others will perceive as weak or not capable. You're listening to Disrupting Balance, the podcast, where we are busting myths and breaking balance. Here's stories from women who are pushing boundaries to navigate the decisions and changes that come with work, womanhood, and winning. I'm your host, Hanifa Barnes, speaker, decision strategist, and master imbalancepreneur. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Hope you enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the show. We are in the very last episode of season two of the Disrupting Balance podcast. Thank you to everyone who's been listening and downloading and providing your comments and reviews. It has been so uplifting and encouraging. And you know what? I'm already ready for season three, so I hope you join me. Today's guest is an award-winning author and life coach. H. Michelle Johnson has definitely found her equilibrium. After years of following the status quo of her Caribbean upbringing, Michelle finally decided to live the life she desired by pursuing her lifelong passion to become a writer. Before that point, she was a nursing executive, a researcher who co-authored research papers in cancer genetics and found much professional success while at the same time having to navigate her own internal struggles with depression. She has since published her first book, Doing Great Exploits, completed a second book, and is working on a third. For Michelle, life began at 50. A freedom, a strength, an identity, and self-acceptance that has released her from the myths and allowed her to live her life on her terms. To learn more about Michelle, her background, her books, her work, and where to follow, check the show notes. So welcome to Disrupting Balance, H. Michelle Johnson, a fellow disruptor. I'm so excited to have you here on the podcast. How are you today? I am doing very well indeed, Hanifa. Thank you so much for the invitation to participate in your um, podcast. And in fact, I just giggled when you said a fellow disruptor. Yes. (laughs) Never really thought of myself as (laughs) in that light. But yes, of course, that's what I do. Yes. Yes. So on that note, tell us, what is your story? Well, my story is... Uh, a rich and and um, varied one. Um, my story, I guess, is that I'm a black female. I'm aged 51 and I'm really enjoying my life. I think for me, life began at 50. <laughs> um, I was born in Trinidad, um, which is part of a country called Trinidad and Tobago. You would be surprised at how many people don't actually know about it, but it's in the Caribbean. At age 15, I migrated to Toronto, Canada for school. Then I moved to the United Kingdom um, at age 21, where I have lived ever since. So I am a daughter. I am a sister, a niece, and friend. In terms of my professional life, I began in nursing. So nursing is my background. 
And I am now a communication specialist within our National Health Service here in the UK. Apart from my day job, I do a number of other things. Um, for example, I'm an author and I'm delighted to say that I won my book, Do It Exploits, won a book of the year 2020 award um, in February. However, the award ceremony has been postponed due to the COVID lockdown. So I'm really thrilled anyway that, that I was nominated and then won that award. Um, I'm about to publish my second book, which is titled Bouncing Back, Strategies for Building Resilience and Boosting Mood When Life Gets Challenging. And interestingly, I'm on my third book now, just waiting to publish that second one, but I've already started to put together a third one. Um, it's called The Purpose Matrix. At least that's the title that I'm playing with at the moment. Um, so, And apart from writing, I've been a radio presenter for about four years, running my own talk shows. And my most recent one is, um, I co-host that with a dear friend of mine called Lyndon Massart, and it's called Chat Back with Lyndon and Michelle. That is my story in a nutshell, in terms of who I am and what I do. That is quite a full and inspirational story. You've done a lot. But what I want to focus in on is your statement about life beginning at 50, because based on your story, your life has been quite full. So why the statement then that life began at 50? Actually, that's a really brilliant observation. Um, yeah, because I, I have done quite a lot up, you know, over the last 20, 25 years with um, publishing and radio and all sorts of other things. But I guess um, I just felt when I turned 50, there's a kind of a freedom that just has come to me in terms of being strong in my identity, being strong in terms of who I am. I guess it's about self-acceptance completely as well, what's and all. You know, recognizing I'm not perfect, but actually I'm not as hard on myself as perhaps I used to be for whatever I perceived as imperfect. Um, I think I've just come into myself and um, I feel far more confident than ever before. I feel bolder than ever before. I feel resolved in going after the things in life that I want for myself um, in terms of goals and achievements and things like that. So I just feel completely unfettered in a way that I didn't feel when I was younger, even though I did have the freedom to do all the things that I just described. But I suppose the other thing is, it's. I think the, the root of it might be the self-acceptance because, you know, when you're younger, you just sort of are striving for this or striving for that. You're striving to complete your degrees. You're striving to get the job. You're striving to do well in the job. You're striving to get a promotion and on and on it goes. I think where I'm at in my life now is that, yes, I'm still wanting to achieve different things and I'm still challenging myself, but it's in a way that I don't feel as under pressure, I guess. And I think that, you know, if I, if I reach for something and um, I don't quite make it there, I can forgive myself much easier than I did when I was younger, I suppose. So maybe that's why. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, you talked about this self-acceptance, and that is quite a broad term in the life of 
a young woman and a woman in general. And so what I would like to know is what are some of those things that limited your self-acceptance? I know you talked about striving, academics, and kind of, you know, trying to make your way, but what were some of those pivotal moments or events specifically in your life that limited your ability to accept who you are? First of all, even kind of knowing who you are. So I guess I was a work in progress for all those years. Uh, I think too, because there was always a kind of a tension within me in that I wanted to write and I wanted to write full time. But, you know, I come from a culture and a family that, um, you know, the, the, the sort of Trinidadian dream is that you go to university. It's all about education. You know, if you can get a master's degree at the minimum, um, ideally do a PhD, but we'll just ac- we'll settle on the master's. Get yourself into a job. Ensure that you're earning a good salary. You know, get a home. Um, get married, have children. And that was, you know, of my parents' generation, that was a big deal. So I kind of tried very hard to, and, but at the same time, I wanted to be a writer. So that was a source of conflict between my mom and I. And um, she just felt that what, what is writing? You know, people don't earn money writing. As, as, and I guess, especially since we were in Trinidad, you know, it was just completely not what she had in mind for me. Um, so I kind of gave in to her desire and wish. And really it was all because she wanted us, wanted me to, to be able to um, be financially stable and be financially independent and you have a steady job and a steady salary. So that's where that was coming from. So there was no room really, even though she was a very artistic person, there was no room really for me saying, oh, I don't want to go to university. I just want to write. I want to be an author. Um, and I think that perhaps I just um, for a long time into my early adulthood and onwards, there was always that tension. So I often put my passion to one side so that I can continue to fulfill that secure route of, you know, um, getting qualified and getting a job and having a salary and living that life. And that life made me tired in many ways. I think normally it makes people tired to just be, to have a job and to be working. And so it didn't leave me a lot of room to develop the, the true love and the true passion of, uh, that I had around writing. I did some writing. So I am published on, in various magazines and online and print and all that stuff, but nowhere near what I probably would have been published um, had I just been able to go down that route. So I think there was always that struggle um, bet- inside of me. So, um, But I think in my 40s, when I finally buckled down and decided that I was going to publish Do Great Exploits and then published it and then had such a lovely response um, from people with regards to the book, that kind of validated that big part of me that had been neglected or hidden or put to one side um, for so many years. And I think since I've done that, certainly, you know, I've just, it's given me the opportunity to meet some really amazing 
people. Um, plus, you know, it opened the door for me to get onto radio, which was another dream that I have. So media has been a thing for me as well. And so I, f- I suddenly find myself a published author, being invited to speak, getting involved in various things like podcasts, for example, and also being on radio, sharing my opinions and talking to dynamic people about their own exploits and so on. So um, I think allowing that very important part of me to emerge, to bloom, to blossom, to nurture it, and then to produce what I just described is what has led to that that um i don't know self acceptance is what i'm saying but i just maybe it's more about um an equilibrium i guess i don't know but uh it just feels that that bit that was just in a closet has come out and it's and it's now beautiful and it's it's exciting and it's actually what's given me my place in the world yeah that is very interesting. And there's a lot in that. I mean, first of all, I hear a lot of my own upbringing and experience coming from a household, an African household. My father's East African, my mother West African, and the same myths around, you know, the expectations and adulthood are there. Like you can't mm. go do these jobs that are creative. That's not yeah. real. <laughs> you have to go get an education. Because that ensures that you can get the job to make the money to support yourself. So I absolutely connect all that. But in hearing your story unfold, once you got to the point in your 40s where you said, I buckled down to publish my first book, it sounds like what started to happen was this idea of congruence, right? Because you have Mm. these two paths of you. Yeah. You have Mm -hmm. the path that you thought you were supposed to do. Then you have the path that you always desire to do. Mm -hmm. And they, it sounded like it started to come together. But before that point, what were those struggles for you in all of that coming together? What did you have to deal with? What were you up against mentally and physically? Hmm. So that's a good question. And, you know, hindsight is, is a great revelator because, when you're going through those paces in life, you don't really have a full necessarily full understanding of what's happening to you and why. So I, um, during the course of those earlier years, even though I was doing a job, I mean, I was a nurse and in fact, it was something that my mother chose for me. Um, so much so that she applied for me without my knowing about it. Because as I said, you know, I was just adamant, I want to write and I want to find opportunities wow. in writing. And and so she decided to apply um, to a nursing school in the UK for me. And so I eventually, you know, I just, I just complied and I got on that plane and I came over and um, in fact, enjoyed my life as a nurse very much. But I think over the years, um, there just came a point where I began to feel really low and very demotivated and really disconnected. Um, And I decided to go and speak with someone about that because it was kind of ongoing and it wasn't, um, I wasn't able to quite get rid of that feeling of just being lost. And um, the person I saw, it was, turned out to be, I mean, it was a psychiatrist because I thought, well, let me go and have some psychotherapy and see what is really the matter with me. And the the doctor suggested, well, she not suggested, she said to me that that I had depression. And I was so stunned. I just could not believe what I was hearing. 
Mm-hmm. Um, don't ask me why, because like literally for the six months I saw her, every time I was in her consulting room, all I did for the hour was cry. <laughs> so when she finally came up with this depression thing, it's very odd that I just thought, no, she's crazy. This is not me. That's the other thing. There's no room for depression in my culture. There's no room for depression in my family. I don't know anyone who, I mean, my mother has had bouts of depression, but again, it wasn't something that was spoken of. It wasn't something that you know, and it's not some, you know, everybody in the family, they're pretty much high achievers. You know, I've got aunts who are CEOs of banks, uh, credit unions, and um, an aunt, you know, corporate banker. And my mother was a teacher who did all sorts of things that, you know, apart from teaching. So I always had this high stand, this, there was always these high standards, high bars for us younger children younger people to to aspire to and nowhere did you really see this thing called depression um and so again you know i just rejected that and i thought this is just completely alien i don't know what this woman's talking about and that's it and in fact i stopped seeing her um she called me many times and i just refused to go back into therapy with her because i thought forget that i'm not accepting that label so i swept that under the carpet and um but continued to struggle, you know, somehow I was struggling quite a bit. But then I found a job in communication. So I came out of nursing and went into communications because I thought, again, here's something that I imagined would be a great outlet for writing and being creative. And it is to a certain extent, Um, but it still wasn't meeting that deep need that was on the inside of me. And I got this job, um, in a city that was very far from where I lived. So it was a two hour commute one way. And I did that every day for two and a half years. Um, But I thought to myself, eventually sort of, you know, halfway through that, I thought, you know, I have to do something, give myself a project because there's just no way I'm going to survive this. And that's where the book came out. So I just thought, you know what, I'm sitting down all the way to Kingston and I'm sitting on the way back. So just get your iPad and start writing. And in fact, that's how I did the first draft of Do Great Exploits. And then when I, so that took me about six months to do. When I got a couple of people to read it and give some feedback, realized I needed to do some changing. So then I decided that took me about three months to do the, fir- the, the second draft, which I then submitted to a publisher who then said, yes, this is publishable work and then supported me um, to actually publish the book. So um, I think going, looking back, that whole episode with the depression, I think it was linked to this really deep, unfulfilled um, need that just was always there that I was not fully addressing. Because as I said, you know, I didn't suddenly um, come out of depression, but having that project, that book to write really did help me um, emerge out of that fog of depression, if you like. Mm -hmm. And um, really propelled me upwards to the surface, if you like, again, where the light is. And really, I would say that I have been in that light ever since. Yeah. So I want you to consider this question from your professional opinion, because you were in a senior nursing role for 10 years Mm. and you co-authored 11 research papers in cancer genetics. And so I guess the question is, 
What have you found, if you have, around this idea of rejecting depression? Mm. What is that from your professional perspective? Because I'm sure you can look at it retrospectively in your personal life, right? And say, this is probably why, because I needed to unleash Mm. this desire to write. Mm -hmm. But from a professional perspective, what would you say is the reason people reject it initially? Okay. Well, I think the reason people reject depression is because of the stigma. So um, it's taboo in many cultures around the world, Um, whether it's the Afro-Caribbean culture, whether it is African culture, Indian culture, um, these cultures stigmatize mental illness, mental health problems. And, um, I think it was largely that. So again, you know, you, 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 you go through life thinking, um, you have an idea of yourself. You have a vision of yourself or an understanding of who you are. And, you know, I always did well in my jobs. I was always liked. Um, I was all because I, I am a really, um, efficient and proficient um, employee. I work well. And so I always had really good relationships with my managers and my bosses and everything. So on the outside, I was functioning and I was performing. But on the inside, I was getting more and more crushed. Um, Mm. And so you have this perception of yourself as a strong black woman. So that's the other thing. Mm -hmm. I'm a strong, independent, powerful woman. I'm doing this, as you say, I'm publishing in journals. Many nurses I know of haven't published anything at all. Um, you, You just view yourself and people view you as strong and capable. And you don't want to to um, disrupt, <laughs> disrupt that perception <laughs> mm-hmm. because your, your, you know, your reputation um, is, uh, is rooted in it. Your, your competence is rooted in that. Your trustworthiness is rooted in that, in that perception that people have of you as strong, as powerful, as capable, as a performer. And um, you don't want to to disappoint them. You don't want to let them down. You you don't want to appear to be someone vulnerable or someone who others will perceive as weak or um, not capable. And so you're presented with this diagnosis, depression. And actually depression is a very, very common um, issue for people in the West in particular, you know, so you've got high numbers of depression amongst people. And I think that everybody's hiding it. Everybody's hiding it. And for those yeah. reasons, because yeah. you just don't want to get into a situation where people are perceiving you in a way that is unfavorable. Um, so it's the stigma that's attached. So I rejected it because of the stigma, but I rejected it also because that's not how I saw myself. So even I was very wrong in my perception about what depression is and what depression Mm -hmm. Um, what the impact of depression is. And so for a long time, I battled through on pure strength. I'm a a woman of faith as well. So I used to pray. I used to do everything, read the Bible, do everything I could to feel better emotionally um, and soldier on the best I could. Because while actively dismissing this idea that actually I've got a condition and that I need to have some very specific help, 
to overcome. So that's the that's the sad thing about um, stigma because it prevents people from yeah. um, opening up and seeking the kind of help that they they need. And in fact, once I was able to access that, that's when tables also turned. You know, um, and I've never looked back. Good for you. So let's take a little turn and talk about uh, because I started this segment by saying we are fellow disruptors, um, and that was very intentional um, because disruption is an aspect of your very first book, Do Great Exploits. Um, You say it activates people to move through and disrupt passivity. So let's talk about disrupting passivity and the premise of Do Great Exploits. Mm. So passivity, a lot of people go through life living by default, which is pretty much what I outlined earlier on about the cultural expectations, the Trinidadian dream, go to school, get a degree, get married, buy a ho- get a job, buy a house, get retired and then die. Right. So <laughs> I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, within each one of us, I think there's a, a lot more to offer than than what I just outlined. Um, So people live by default going through those motions. Um, And that's fine. You know, on one level, that's fine. I'm not criticizing that life. Um, But there are some people who do connect and perceive something more inside them that they want to release, but in fact are passive about it. So they don't, they know or they want or they dream or they wish or they pray for something to happen, some dream to be fulfilled, um, some hope to be realized, but they're not actually actively doing, taking action, doing what is required to see the fulfillment of the dream. And I suppose for me, coming from a church background as well, that's what I, my observation was in the church and even of my own life, because look how long it took me to to take a book that I'd written to a publisher. Mm-hmm. So you mm-hmm. could, and I was in church all the time praying and worshiping and doing all going through all the motions that church people go through um knowing that there were books in me but actually not actually sitting down to write them so that's what i mean by passivity when you know there's a dream when you know there's something you want to achieve but you're not doing anything to achieve it and when i say disrupting that passivity i mean by getting people to move, getting people to take action, getting people to step out, whether it's they need to step out of their comfort zones, whether they need to, to just get an action plan together, whatever it is to activate people. So for example, I've got many testimonials about people who've read, read the book. And one of them really stands out for me because I got this call really early one Sunday morning by someone, her name's Mary. And, you know, Mary's got an illustrious career. She was involved with the BBC as a news correspondent and she was on Radio 4 and all that stuff. But she's now a businesswoman. So she called me early one Sunday morning and she said, Michelle, I've called you. I was still in bed, still half asleep. So Mary was saying to me, I was waiting for hours um, and waiting for a decent hour to come so that I could actually phone you. <laughs> so, um So I took the call and basically she was saying that she literally spent the night reading my book. And in the course of the night, she'd booked her tickets to um, a town called Calais, which is in France. It's a coastal town. And that town, because it's on the border of the Aegean Sea, a lot of refugees cross it. So I don't know whether you 
would have seen some of the images of people on these huge dinghies, sometimes 200 people on these little boats, just adrift on this massive sea. And what they're doing is fleeing. So they're coming from all parts of the world up through Africa, up through North Africa, and getting on these boats to try to come to Europe. So they land on Calais, and many people have actually lost their lives in that process. They come into Calais as refugees. And so her dream was actually to start up a charity that would go and support and serve those refugees. So finally, she said, reading the book gave her that impetus. It really activated her to take action on that, so much so that she booked her her ticket to Calais um, and then couldn't wait to call me to tell me that was the impact. And so I get that from people who write back to, to say they've, they've you know, wanted to, to change jobs for ages or change careers for ages. And finally, they just did it um, just by reading the book. So um, that's what I mean by disrupting passivity. And do you find that when you get this feedback or these testimonials, that it affirms where you are and where you're supposed to be? Or do you feel like you need more to affirm where you are and where you want to be? Um, certainly those testimonials do affirm me and I'm so glad that I wrote the book. You know, every time you get a lovely, um, call from somebody or an email from somebody telling you how the book impacted them, it is, it's moving. It is just humbling. It's just a sigh of relief. It's a celebration for me because that's what I wanted the book to do. And in the book, that's what I'm encouraging people to do is do something with your life that impacts other people, that makes a difference to other people. So to hear that the book is doing that is really a huge reward for me on so many levels. I, I think I'm affirmed. Like if I never write another book, I probably will be that dissatisfied. I still mm-hmm. have books to write. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I mentioned that at the at the start as part of my story. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I've, I've churned out another book and now I'm starting on a third one. So there are books still to be written. And I would feel that, you know, if I were to die without writing them, that I would have deprived the world that I, that I ha- would have not completed my assignment. Let's put it that way. So I feel affirmed in myself. So my affirmation and my identity is not necessarily wrapped up in achieving. I have learned to love myself as I am. Mm -hmm. Um, But obviously, I also want to see that I have left my mark here, that I have made a difference to people. And I want to leave that legacy behind. But I accept myself and love myself as I am. If I never write another book, my love for myself, my acceptance of myself, my respect for myself would not be diminished. What has been your greatest exploit? Wow. That's a great question. It's a question that I ask people all the time, in fact. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I would probably go back to writing that, to publishing that first book. So it's not the first book that I've written, but I would say writing that book was my greatest exploit. I could probably say overcoming depression was another great exploit. Um, Mm -hmm. It would have, it would be one or the other, really. And the and they're both connected. So as I said, writing that book 
was cathartic. It was helpful to me um, emotionally and psychologically. And um, I I probably would have recovered without it, but um, I saw, see it as a big part of my recovery. Yeah. But I guess it's finally putting that book out there. I think if you want to say what's my greatest achievement, I would say that book. I am H. Michelle Johnson. I am disrupting balance by challenging people to come out of their comfort zones, by drawing people out of their comfort zones and empowering them to take action on achieving their preferred outcomes in life. Thank you for listening to Disrupting Balance. To learn more about how I'm disrupting balance, follow me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Pinterest at Disrupting Balance. You can also check out my website at www.disruptingbalance.com to get podcast updates and news from the Balance Disruptor community about how you can become your very own master in balancepreneur. Talk soon.